Hi family, welcome to church at your house. It's great that we can actually gather together, though COVID level 2.5, alert level 2.5, you know, it's unfortunate that we are restricted to 50 people and we can't meet in our auditorium, but it's still a great opportunity where we can gather together in each other's houses and fellowship and keep the numbers below 50. I hope that you've gathered with someone else from church and are going to have a great time this morning as we, as we worship together and hear the word. So first of all, I just want to give a big shout out and a congratulations to Seb and Sophie for their engagement last weekend. If you uh, get a chance, drop them a text or just give them congrats, I'd love it. So uh, this morning... Uh, after we have worshipped together and heard from the Word, we thought it would be great to encourage you to maybe uh, share communion together in your house and, and just celebrate that with, with the people that you're with and worship God in that way. And today we have uh, a real father and son set up for you to enjoy. We have, first of all, Mike Collins and his team going to lead us in worship together. And then we have Steve Colin's going to come and share the word to us, a word around grace, and I hope you really enjoy it and take it on board. So first of all, let's all stand together, stretch the legs, and let's sing with real gusto. Make sure that your neighbours hear you from across the road. God bless. Good morning, people loved by God. Now before you just brush that off and, and move on. I just want to spend a minute just trying to get us to, to realize that we are actually loved by our God. I'm going to read something I've read before. It's, uh, it's an excerpt from the devotional, The Word for Today. And uh, it's, just, it's just so powerful in helping us recognize how much He actually loves us. It says, Nothing could make God love you more than He does right now. Not greater achievement, greater beauty, greater recognition, not even greater spirituality. And nothing could make him love you less. Not your character flaws, your past failures and regrets. The irony is we spend our lives trying to earn a love that can only be received by faith when we acknowledge that within us there's an emptiness only God can fill, and he will. But the truth is, learning to live in the love of God is the challenge of a lifetime. Many of us grew up with parents who withheld their love as an expression of their disapproval. And we think God does that too, but he doesn't. 1 John 3, 1 in the Bible says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. C.S. Lewis wrote, God who needs nothing, loved into existence completely superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. God did not make us because he was bored, lonely, or had run out of things to do. He created us to be the objects of his love. Sometimes our actions make us unlovely, but we are never unloved. And because God loves us, we have value. And nobody can take that value away. God's love, revealed at Calvary, on the cross, fastens itself onto flawed creatures like us. And for reasons none of us can ever quite figure out, makes us precious and valued beyond calculation. This is love beyond reason. And this is the love with which God loves us. Shadow you are. 
don't always understand and I don't always get to see but I will believe it I will believe it you make mountains move you make giants fall you use songs of praise to shake prison walls and I will speak to my fear
Mihi ana ki a koutou katoa, ko ngā kōhatu whakarekereka o tamatea pōkai whenua e rūnei taku ngākau, ko ōtakaro te awa e mahi nei aku māharahara. Mihi ana ki ngā tohu o nehe o kaitahu e noho nei au, i tipu aki au e roto i tēnei wharekarakia, ko Mike Raua, ko Linda tōku mātua, ko Ruby taku wahine, ko Stephen Collins tōku ingoa. E mahi ana au hei kaiko ki te pai kereru, Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa, morning church. Um, it's good to, not really, see you this morning. <laughs> Where um, I'm here, I'm at church, um, everyone else is at home. Our precedented times became unprecedented again recently, so this is, uh, this is what we've got. So we're going to hope that God makes the best of it. Um, my name is Stephen Collins. I grew up here in the city, in this church. Some of you may have seen me around. I'm usually banished to the perspex cage behind me, but this is one of those uh, funny times where I get to come out the front and maybe share some things. So, we're in for a treat today. We're going to delve into some of God's Word, some encouragements that He gives us, um, maybe some practical tips and tricks to take away, and I might even challenge some people. I want to start with a quote from John Gresham Machen, an American theologian of the early 20th century, and he's quoted as saying, the very center and core of the Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. So that's what we're going to explore today. What I'm going to try and do is explain this grace, what it really is and uh, what it looks like to experience and live in God's grace. And this might seem like something that's kind of basic, but it's so incredibly vital to our life and our walk with Jesus. And if this is a concept that you get, you understand, then you need more of it, and there is more of it. Uh, This might be a morning where you just let the goodness of this message just wash over you and refresh you and encourage you. Whereas if you don't get this, this is everything. This is essentially the fundamental gospel and something that will, and I mean will not, could, change your life. I need to... Um, preface this message though with a couple of things. Firstly, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I've done my research, I've read my Bible. This is me sharing some thoughts on this topic that God has put on my heart. Secondly, it's 
possibly quite difficult for me to explain what it's like to experience and to live in God's grace. You kind of have to experience it and live it for yourself. It's almost like telling a toddler that cat food doesn't taste nice. You can utilize the utmost eloquence of language to try and explain to them that it's going to be yuck, but they're probably still going to grab it and taste it. They need to do that to know what it's like. And that's not me trying to say that, uh, church, you are all toddlers and that God's grace is cat food, but I couldn't really think of a better analogy. Now, I'm just going to run you through some of the things that God's been putting on my heart, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to ask God to come and do whatever else it is that he wants to do. So, let's crack on. There's a uh, Victorian preacher called Charles Spurgeon, and he has a, um, a good and challenging little quote that I like, which says, You see that the mark of a child of God is that by the grace of God he is what he is. But what do you know of the grace of God? Oh, well, I attend a place of worship regularly. Okay, but what do you know about the grace of God? Well, I've always been an upright, honest, truthful, and respectful person. Well, I'm glad to hear it, but what do you know of the grace of God? So, what do we actually know of the grace of God? Theologians love to divide grace into categories, argue the details. But what does it actually mean at its core, though? What does it look like? How does God see us? What's the application of that? You can read all the books and hear all the amazing people like me talk about it. But how do you actually come to understand and experience God's grace? So we're going to go back to the beginning, or even maybe before the beginning. We're going to go back to one of my favorite things, and I'm sorry, I'm a teacher. You, you, you get to suffer this. It's etymology. Um, we're going to look at the word. The original translations of the New Testament didn't say grace, as in the English word. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And the Greek word that was most often used and then translated as grace was charis. C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. And there are several different meanings um, or translations for this word um, that we use today, most of them anyway. Firstly, it's the root word for charisma. Charisma. Um, it could also mean something beautiful, lovely, elegant, without blemish. Think like a beautiful ballet dancer or something. Um, it can be translated as supernatural power or help, and it was often in reference to the ancient Greek gods able to bestow charis on a mortal. And then we land on the fourth one, undeserved kindness. And when I looked in the back of my Bible, it had a pretty fitting definition. It says, unmerited favor, especially the free gift of salvation that God gives to believers through faith in Jesus Christ. And I like to think that things written in the Bible aren't done so lightly, and uh, that goes for the glossary in the back. So I want to look at the words that it says here, and I'll read it again. Unmerited favor, especially the free gift of salvation that God gives to believers through faith in Jesus Christ. Unmerited, not adequately earned or deserved, not merited. Favor, partiality, leniency, gracious kindness, special privilege to oblige, endow, or prefer. Free gift, having no cost. It's a voluntary transfer by one person to another without compensation. And salvation, the deliverance from the power and effects of sin and preservation from destruction or failure. Now, there's levels, I would say, to this kind of grace, this undeserved kindness grace. Uh, there's human, earthly kind of undeserved kindness. My parents showed me grace when I was growing up. I was a terror some of the time, and I'm learning now, being a teacher myself, and teaching kids that are painfully similar to I was, how much grace my teachers had. But my parents... They knew that I loved them underneath all the crap that I gave them. And my teachers, well, often they were operating under the fact that they were being paid to be nice to me. And there's a difference that biblical grace carries. 
Uh, a Greek scholar named Kenneth Wiest, he described it pretty well. He says, Grace signified in classical authors a favour done out of spontaneous generosity of the heart without any expectation or return. That's that undeserved kindness. Of course, this favour was always done to one's friend and never to an enemy. But when Charis comes into the New Testament, it takes an infinite leap forward. For the favour God did it, Calvary was for those who hated him. The difference with biblical grace to this human grace is that it's towards everyone, regardless of who they are, and even towards those people who hate the giver, God. Now, there's a uh, misconception. I don't know if it's a common misconception or not. It's a misconception that I held um, until recently about the extent of Old and New Testament grace and the difference that there may or may not have been. Um, the misconception being that grace started with Jesus. He was the one who brought it. Before that, there was law. Then Jesus came and there was grace. And things were certainly different when Jesus was born, when he lived and when he died. But grace didn't start with him. God revealed his grace all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus was the embodiment and the elaboration. And he revealed it further. But God's character didn't change from Old Testament to New. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, not when Jesus showed up. There's plenty of examples in the Old Testament of God's grace, including God's grace infused in the story of Noah, uh, God's grace enduring despite the unbelief of Abraham and Sarah, God's grace giving Joseph the strength he needed to persevere, uh, Moses doubting God at every turn, but he still graciously guided him. The Israelites, constant rebellion, but he still graciously rescued them. Rahab, bravely asking God to save her despite all of her past sins, and he did. David, lusting, stealing, fornicating, lying, killing, and yet God saw his heart and loved him graciously. God's character and his grace has never changed. But there was a difference when Jesus lived and died. Uh, in Hebrews 8, I won't go through it all, but it talks about the built-in obsolescence of the old or the Mosaic covenant. God never intended for it to last forever. What was always intended was the new covenant in Jesus. That new covenant is explained through Romans 3 and 4, and I won't read all those scriptures either, um, but it does say this. It talks about how all nations including Israel, are trapped in sin and are guilty. Uh, actually, Israel being more guilty because they had the Torah and they had God's guidance and they still screwed it up. However, there is good news. Instead of holding humanity responsible for their guilt, God's response was to send Jesus as Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus overcame that death that was supposed to be ours when he was crucified and when he was resurrected. And that resurrection life is available to others, to us. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Now, Tara described this perfectly. She shared a vision and a picture that God gave her um, back in June at one of our collective pursuit evenings. She shared with us a picture of a crown entitled it The Beautiful Exchange. The crown was in two parts, and I'm hoping with the magic of technology we can get a picture of it up. But it was one half beautiful, golden, encrusted with precious jewels. And on the other half was a crown of thorns. Our shame, our sin, our brokenness, and he exchanged it, his royal crown, his birthright, with our crown of thorns. He took it and gave us his crown of glory. That crown is now our birthright. 
And as followers of Jesus, we hold right to his glory, his power and his righteousness. His grace is our birthright. When we know and accept this, it's called justification by faith. Justification meaning to declare righteous. Those who, through their faith in Christ, are justified and righteous. And this uncovers or unlocks an inheritance of God's grace. When we're justified by faith, we unlock a new status. We are forgiven and we are right with God. We unlock a new family. We are now part of God's people. And we get a new future, a transformed life filled with more than we could imagine. And I know it's a cliche, but it's true. So, what does this mean today? Biblical grace. It's just in the Bible, right? No, we can receive God's grace today. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul wrote this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through what we do, not our works, not our deeds, but through him and only him. Simply put, it is Jesus. That's the way that we actually receive God's grace. He is the embodiment and the perfect example of it. And he showed us all throughout his life what he wanted to give us. Just his being on earth was an example God didn't look down at the people of earth and think, oh, by golly, they're doing really well. They deserve a savior. No. He sent his son into a hostile, sinful, and God-hating world because we needed him, not because we deserved him. God's gift of grace is always there for those who choose to receive it, but it does require some action from our part. It's not a passive transaction. There needs to be movement made. And I know you're thinking, oh, that seems contradictory, right, Steve? How do we not do something, but we have to do something? Well, faith in the pure sense and in regard to receiving God's gifts isn't a deed. It's not something you need to do necessarily. It's something that uh, you, you simply see the promises of God and you accept them as your own. You believe them to be true, saying that those promises are for me. It's about taking God's word at face value without putting our own spin on it and saying things like, oh yeah, God's amazing and maybe he did miracles, but that was then, not for now. Not, well, and maybe saying something like, God's loving and powerful, for sure I get it. I've seen that. But it doesn't make sense that he would love me, not fully anyway. No, no. The enemy would love you to think that. He would love you to think that you're not enough, that God isn't as great as the Bible says that he is. And that mindset, that rejection of God's grace is linked to our acceptance of shame. Two sides of the same coin. God's grace is our birthright and you are so entitled to that goodness. You are so entitled to his promises, his blessings, and the miracles that he says are yours. If you can choose to believe the promises of God through faith and take God for his word. Um, I want to share just a quick testimony about uh, a reception of God's grace that Ruby and I went through recently. Some people may know that last week we moved into our first home that we owned. Um, we didn't deserve this. Uh, we prayed, and God said, okay. And there were so many circumstances along that process where God showed up and said, I love you, even though we didn't deserve it. We didn't even have any finance sorted. We had the real estate agent harassing us of a house that we went and saw on a whim and uh, she told us that, oh, it's fine, put an offer in. You can be conditional to finance. You don't need the money. If, you don't, if your offer gets accepted and you don't have any money, 
bit is fine. So we thought, fine, it'll be fun. We might learn something. So we put an offer in on the place, a place that we loved, actually. And then we met with the bank and we said, hey, look, we just want to know what, what we're worth, what we can afford. And they said, okay, cool, we'll put an application through for finance based on this house that you guys like. And we said, okay, cool, sure. It's all hypothetical. And then the offer got accepted. And then the finance got accepted. And bear in mind that I've only been working for a year and a half, full-time. Ruby is on a short-term six-month contract. We are the highest risk lenders that there could possibly be. And God said, okay, you don't deserve it, but I love you. And that's not me boasting. It's just an example of stepping out in faith and receiving God's gracious gifts, and we are grateful. And that will look different for everyone. It won't look the same. But that was just a little story. So now that we kind of know what grace is and how we might receive it, what do we do with it? How do we live in it once we've received it? Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of the Lord. Grace isn't something that we experience or receive once. It's not something that we get when we're saved and then that's it. It's something in which we stand. It's ongoing, continuous, and there's more. And that's what I was talking about at the start. If you get this, there's more. There's a funny story that I heard. I don't know how true it is necessarily, but it's funny anyway, of um, Albert Einstein at a dinner party. And he's sitting next to a woman, and she doesn't really know who he is. And she says, well, what do you do for a living? What's your profession? And he says, I devote myself to the study of physics. She says, oh, that's nice. I finished that when I was in ninth grade. And there's a similar mindset that we are vulnerable to suffer from as well that the enemy would try and have you think that grace is something that you get or you master or you understand, and then that's it. But in God, we have so much more power than that. If the devil tells you that you're a sinner, that you can't go before God looking like that, then you and I as Christians have the power to answer. I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm justified in Jesus Christ. And that's that same firm ground from the good news in Romans 3. If the devil tells you that your sin is too great or too horrible, you tell him of the greatness of Jesus' righteousness because that is your standing. And if the devil reminds you of your failures, you tell him that you know all about them, but that you also know a Savior who came to save you. The unmatched and powerful truth of Romans 5, 1 to 2 tells us that your access to standing in God's grace cannot be denied. That Jesus paid the ultimate price by his sinless life and his absolutely sacrificial death. That's done. It's yours. He paid that price to make sure that you have a clear path to the throne of grace. And again, it's your birthright. There's a song that I love from Elevation Worship called Gyra, where the lyrics spell out the beauty that God's grace has for you. It's an awesome encouragement. And uh, if it's not something that you're feeling right now, like this whole um, good grace of God, then I encourage you to look it up and have a listen. Speak the words of it over your own life. I'm going to say some of them now. He's forever enough. Always enough. More than enough. I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I know who I am. I know what you've spoken. I'm already loved more than I can imagine, and that is enough. What his truth says is better than anything. That is enough. What he's declared over us, it's true. That is enough. You are enough. You're my portion more than enough for me. You are enough, so I am enough. You are enough, so I am enough. 
If he dresses the lilies with beauty and splendor, how much more will he clothe you? If he watches over every sparrow, how much more does he love you? It's more than you ask, think, or imagine, according to his power working in us. It's more than enough. It's one thing to understand and experience grace. But when you're filled with that unmerited favor and that free gift of salvation, you can also be grace as well. Jesus' love for sinners and outcasts demonstrated that exact unmerited favor. But it wasn't just with extreme spectrum examples that Jesus did that. It was with those who were close to him, those who just made mistakes, those who doubted him, and those who didn't necessarily have dramatic redemption stories waiting to be told of how from one day to the next they were radically changed or healed. Jesus showed grace in the awkward situations and to the awkward people. To those who we might say that we love, but we can't really help judging still. Who we say that we love, but we might avoid extended conversations with for a variety of reasons. To those who, despite our best efforts, we might even think deserving of their situations. Oh, yes, it's terrible what happened to blah, blah, blah. But I guess that's what happens when you hang around people like that. Or, oh, that's really unfortunate. But, you know, they kind of put themselves in a situation where it was bound to happen. I want to talk about what Jesus did when he encountered people in situations like that. John 8, 2 to 11 talks about Jesus sitting down and teaching. And then the scribes and Pharisees bring him this woman. They put her in the middle of where he was teaching and they challenged Jesus, saying, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They were trying to trap and discredit Jesus. They were those voices of judgment in our heads when we are in those awkward situations or with those awkward people. But Jesus turned the tables on them, causing them to be convicted by their own consciences. He challenged the law of the time, saying, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And it would be super easy to sit here now and to say that, yeah, I'd act like that too. I'm not a horrible person. I would never be so heartless and condemn someone like the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. I'm putting my hand up and saying that I hope that I would. I hope I would act like that. As a matter of fact, I'm convicted about times when I haven't acted like that. All I do know is that I'm grateful that Jesus acted like that. Because the story of the woman caught in adultery, that's my story and it's your story. It's all of our story. Each of us was also a sinner caught dead to rights in our guilt and in our sins and we deserved that same death penalty. But Jesus stepped in and said to us, just like he said to that woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Jesus gave his life for us that we might be forgiven and have that awful penalty removed and that we could live in the right way in righteousness without condemnation. The practical application of these kinds of New Testament doctrines of grace can be life-changing because God's grace is life-changing. If that's something that you are lacking or not living to its fullest, then it's time for your grace experience. It's time for you to get grace. Get it both in its understanding, but also in the reception of it. I want to finish by reading and declaring Romans 8, 1 to 14 over us all. And if you remember nothing else, these verses, they're the essence of what I'm talking about. They illustrate the abundant life through the Spirit that accepting Jesus' sacrifice, love, 
and grace for us as. And it's just a really great scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So I just want to pray now. And I encourage you to take time. However much time. Connect with God. Seek him. Ask him. Are you living a life and grace to the fullest? Is there more that he has for you? Thank him and praise him for what he has done. Take that time um, if you connect with God well through worship and, and, and music. Do that. If you connect well with God through fellowship, through talking with others, do that. If you need to get out of nature, do that. Whatever it is you need to do, take this time thank you father for your for your sacrifice for your gospel that we are free that we are blameless in christ that we are co-heirs with christ to the throne and we share in his glory god please increase our understanding and our reception of your amazing grace that we would go away today filled with your love and your good news to be able to live in your truth and to be grace to those around us you are so so good and i just want to praise you for everything that you've done and that you promise that you will do
Well, friends, I hope you really enjoyed this morning's service. I hope that you were encouraged and blessed and even challenged about, about where you stand with grace and particularly um, sharing grace towards other people. Why don't you just spend now a few minutes sharing together maybe one thing that God spoke to you either during the talk or during the worship time and encourage each other with that. And then perhaps you might want to pause and share communion together as we said at the start and worship God together in that way, which is one of our sacraments. Church, I hope that you have a fantastic week this week, being the church, blessing others and doing incredible things in God. God bless.